0: is from the book of Micah chapter 6 and I understand it's not the same one that's up there this is from the new revised standard version updated edition God challenges Israel hear what the Lord says rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice hear you mountains the case of the Lord and your enduring foundations of the earth for the Lord has a case against all people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember how, what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Baal, answered him and what happened to Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord what God requires with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams with tens of thousands of rivers of oil Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with God. Cheating and violence to be punished. The Lord, the voice of the Lord cries to the city and he shall save those who fear his name. Hear, O tribe, and assemble, of the city? Can I forget the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the despicable false measure? Can I tolerate wicked scales and a bag of dishonest weights? Your wealthy are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies with tongues of deceits in their mouths. Therefore, I have begun to strike you down making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied and there shall be a gnawing hunger with you. You shall put away but not save and what you save I will hand over to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine For you have kept the statues of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have followed your counsels. Therefore, I will make you a desolation and your inhabitants an object of hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people.
1: Well, I love that Patty's story for the children was written by uh, Justice Sotomayor, uh, because she was right. We're going to be talking about courtrooms today. Uh, there are many, many places, both uh, real and fictional, many courtrooms, real and fictional, that have left uh, quotables in our heads. I think first and foremost of "You want the truth." you can't handle the truth okay you're you guys are much more awake than first service was i'm here for it okay it kind of turned into a quiz in first service so i'm okay with it here too if it doesn't fit You you must acquit okay now this one's a little longer so it's not really a quiz but we'll see if you know where it comes from the one place where a man ought to get a square deal is in a courtroom be he any color of the rainbow but people have a way of carrying their resentment right into a jury box. Anyone? Yeah, To Kill Mockingbird, that one's Atticus Finch. Good job. This one might be a little trickier. Undirty word believable. Night court? Anyone, night court. Okay, you, and also I can figure out who's what ages around here by who's getting what. And, and, and there's one for my generation, you know, who can forget Jim Carrey standing up in front of the judge and very dramatically melting and yelling, I can't lie. <laughs> Although that's not the quotable in that movie for our family. In our, yeah, in our family, we always say the pen is royal blue. Okay. Yeah. Come over to dinner at our house. We're weirdos. So what if I told you today that perhaps the most familiar passage of scripture that was sandwiched in the middle of today's chapter from Micah was also a courtroom quote. He has told you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? It's a courtroom quote. Now, Micah, the book is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. The book is addressing the future of Judah, the people of Israel, after the Babylonian exile. And while it's a little bit different from the book of Isaiah, there's a significant overlap of themes here. The book has a vision of the chastisement of Israel, and it creates a remnant of people that's supposed to usher in world peace and under a new Davidic monarch. So Micah in the book sets Israel as the ruler over the nations, and that sounds like a really good outcome for Israel, right? Good outcome. But prophecy is rarely received easily, and the pathway to the end result is often full of destruction and famine, punishment, and a whole mess of other really uncomfortable things. So Micah the prophet is speaking in a context where there is an abundance of religious people. He describes so much religious leadership, and while you might think that that's a really good thing, it isn't. The prophet Micah is calling attention to the loud lip service to God, the the empty words and the oppressive habits. If you read back just a few chapters in the book of Micah, chapter 3 reads this. Hear this, you rulers of the house of Jacob and chiefs of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong. Its rulers give judgments for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets give oracles for money, yet they lean upon the Lord and say, surely the Lord is with us, no harm shall come upon us. And if you think that's intense, go back and read chapter three, verses one through three. I thought about having it read as the lectionary or the scripture lesson for this morning, but I thought nobody would ever volunteer to be liturgist again. So, uh, Micah three one through three—that's your homework. Email me. Let me know what you think. So today we get to chapter six. And to be honest, most of us who have heard and might even say that we live by Micah 6-8 might not have read the whole chapter. In the opening verses of this chapter, God is lodging what seems to be a legal case against Israel. It's set up like a courtroom. And so in a court, you need a jury. And who gets called up for jury duty here? We hear, rise, plead your case before The mountains, let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the controversy of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. This is Micah saying this isn't a small quarrel. This isn't a small matter. This is a cosmic courtroom with a whole people on trial. But we hear that while God is waging complaints, there is still relationship. We hear the Lord has a controversy with his people. There's still relationship there. And we hear repeated, oh my people. It says that even though God is frustrated, there's still relationship. Now I'm not a trial lawyer. I wouldn't cut it as one. But I know that in a court, the role of the jury is important. And in our courtroom context, the prosecutor speaks to the judge and the jury, not to those against whom they are making a case. And yet in this scene, God says, and I I hear it as a begging imploration, what have I done to you? With what have I wearied you? It's like God saying, I just don't get it. And God continues by giving people examples of what God has done for them. I delivered you from slavery. I gave you leaders. I blessed you. And I brought you to the promised land. Let's talk about that I blessed you bit. In this passage, God is citing a time when God spoke through an outsider to bring blessing. We hear in verse 6, O oh my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam son of Beor, answered him. So you might have heard of this text before, but if not, allow me to regale you. In the book of Numbers, King Balak was worried that the Israelites were encamping near his territory. He was worried that they were going to cause his kingdom to fall. They were a threat. But there was this guy, Balaam, who was known for his ability to bless or curse people with his oracles. So Balak sends his messengers to buy Balaam's prophecy. He says, go out and tell the Israelites that God's going to smite them. And then there's this whole bit about a talking donkey. It's not just in Shrek, it's in the Bible too. But we hear Balaam say to the king when he arrives in the king's presence, how can I curse God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? I think we should be asking ourselves this too. How can we curse who God has not cursed? How can we denounce those whom God has not denounced? Micah is using this example to demonstrate that God is going to extraordinary measures for God's people. So, think back to this courtroom scene. Then, like a a trial goes, the people get a counter argument. And it's hard for me to hear their response without a little bit of sarcasm. It's like they're saying to God, What else do you want? Do you want us to bow down? Do you want us to burn incense? Do you want us to sacrifice an animal? Oh, that's not enough. How about thousands of rams, thousands of animals? Oh, that's still not enough. How about rivers of oil? Still not not enough. What do you want us to do? Do you want us to give up our firstborn? The problem is that in their response, they are demonstrating exactly what Micah is speaking against. And that is showy acts of religiosity. And that demonstrates a problem that we still face today. The solutions we offer are focused on appeasing God. It's not focused on any behavioral change from us, the faithful. Amy Oden is a professor of early church history and spirituality at St. Paul School of Theology. And she writes, the go-to response here is to appease God through some form of scorekeeping that tries to put a price tag on God's mercy what payment will it take to get God off of our backs, they ask. But Micah isn't buying it. We can't just write a check. Now I can't also help but read a bit of parental frustration into the prophet's response to their counter-argument. God has told you, O oh mortal, what is good. God has told you, O oh mortal, what is good. It's like when a child asks the same question for the eighth or ninth or 18,000th time, trying to get a different answer, even though they know what you've already said to them. Nobody's ever had that happen, right? <laughs> And Micah is just one of many prophets who are summarizing what God's people should have been hearing all along up until this point. God uses prophets to tell Israel, and I believe God is still trying to tell us too, that their liberation means working for the same liberation for others. It is not to be hoarded. It seems so easy and so difficult all at the same time. Faithfulness is more than keeping religious rituals upheld. We are called to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Why is that so difficult for us? Well, I think a lot of it is because these are not one-time to-do list items that can be checked off and then considered complete. And it's not to say that religious ritual is harmful all the time and should be wholly disregarded. The prophet doesn't tell people to stop doing these things, but he is heaping on top of these things a more robust way of understanding God's will. As Amy Oden again writes, the problem is not religion in itself. The problem is using ritual practice to excuse ourselves from the divine commands of justice and mercy. But equally troublesome, she writes, is the opposite, excusing ourselves from communal practices of prayer and worship on the grounds of social justice work. Either extreme fails to be whole. Now faith as we know it is not really understood in biblical times, even through the life and death of Jesus. There's no word in Hebrew or Aramaic that means faith as we know it. Faith as we understand it, the word, was incorporated onto the Jesus story in the epistles and later in the gospels after his resurrection and ascension. Faith is a holy Christian invention, posits Dr. Will Gaffney. It repurposes and adapts words already in use in Greek and Hebrew, and those words mean faithfulness, a way of living, Instead of a way of believing, we are called to be faithful because God is faithful to us. We hear this reflected in the book of James. We hear, of what benefit is it, my siblings, if you say you have faith but do not have works, Does faith have power to save you if a sibling is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and eat as much as you like, and yet you do not meet the needs of their bodies, of what benefit is that? And so also, faith alone is dead if it has no works. Dr. Gaffney writes, and I quote, the church has reduced faithfulness to faith to belief, what one thinks and affirms, largely in one's head, which is why in the New Testament, faith is primarily faith in Jesus, meaning ascending to a set of theological presuppositions about his origin and identity, the nature and relationship to God. That particular Christian understanding is then injected into earlier scriptures, including back into the Hebrew scriptures, so that faith has replaced faithfulness. As a result, she writes, I am convinced too many believe what God requires of us is merely faith and internal matters, the limitations of which are best demonstrated in concern for salvation without regard for liberation. Now, this is not to say that faith as we understand it is bad or should be avoided. Quite the contrary, as you have heard us articulate through our core values Along with our values of inclusive community and authentic relationships, we are committed to a faith that evolves, reflecting our commitment to living, dynamic, and responsive relationship with God built on the example of Christ. We recognize that faith is a journey of continual growth and exploration and transformation We embrace the mystery and complexity of spirituality while remaining engaged with the evolving needs of the community and the world. But alongside that faith, we have a commitment to global justice. This is a holistic approach to our missions, our outreach, social holiness for the sake of forging justice, mercy, and care in the world. Justice mercy and care god has told us people of linworth what is good and we're already doing so much of this work so much of our dna as a community is built around advocacy physical presence education and active engagement and i could tell you all of the stories but we would literally be here for hours This work for us is more than just marching at pride or statements on our sign, though both of these things have had significant impact on our community. Our commitment to global justice means that we will focus more on hearing the stories of homeowners than the drywall itself during our Habitat for Humanity builds. It means that we care about the grades of a seminary student and missionary in Laos that we support. It means that we continue to show up with our aging knees and our hurting backs to make hundreds of sandwiches for our neighbors experiencing homelessness. It means opening up our building for Ukrainian refugees and supporters to rehearse the songs of liberation and of hope. And actually, one of my absolute favorite stories about how this is already appearing in our DNA is a way that Uh, you probably didn't get to experience because it was lived out in the context of our office staff. Because we have one member, an office volunteer, who is an amazing baker. And we have a lot of amazing bakers here. But this baker in particular, when she comes in to volunteer in the office, she often brings cookies with her. So we get excited to see her. If you want us to be excited, bring us cookies. Uh, But she told us these cookies were meant for us to be the guinea pigs and it made me a a little skeptical although i've never eaten something bad that she's baked but she said i'm trying out this new recipe and i want to make sure that it's perfect and i'd like for you all to try them because these cookies are going to be consumed by women and people who utilize the choices domestic violence shelter she said, I want to know that these cookies are perfect because they, their lives are hard enough and I want them to know that these cookies are one good thing that's happening. And while the cookies were indeed fabulous... Um, I told her even if the cookies were crummy, I would have eaten a bucket of them if it meant that somebody else who is experiencing domestic violence would know that these cookies were full of butter and love and justice. And while all of these things are things that we're already doing, we have to commit ourselves to more whenever we feel that nagging sense of dread over what our country is becoming or the state of the world and I don't know about you but I feel that so often these days that's our reminder that we need to take a deep breath and remember our calling our call to justice and mercy and care I love that none of these words, these concepts, these values, they're not things that can be done alone. Each is forged out of a relationship with God and then enacted through relationship with the world around us. Now our social justice team is praying and planning for an impactful year in 2024, continuing to provide learning and resources on a variety of topics, but we need you to be committed to that work too. Commit yourselves to showing up, to learning, to stretching yourselves. We need to have you commit to keep showing up in mission. We need you to keep giving in ministry and outreach. We need to continue living into these, our core values. We trust in the faithfulness of God that has sustained us through time that has gifted us with leaders, that has blessed us immensely and has brought us to this time of looking forward into the future. So may we live in gratitude for God's faithfulness and seek to live our own faithfulness each and every day.